1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate
2: every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear.
1: And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's
3: only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. For today's podcast, I spoke to the historian and author Helen Fry. Helen's latest book is The Walls Have Ears, which tells a remarkable story of Second World War espionage in which German prisoners of war were tricked into giving away vital secrets. I am at Helen in London to find out more. So your new book delves into one of the most remarkable um, intelligence operations of the Second World War. Could you start off by introducing us to that operation and the story that you go on to tell we've all heard of mi5
3: and mi6 but in the second world war there was also mi9 and mi9 was responsible for gaining intelligence from captured german prisoners of war or actually incidentally even intelligence from our guys that were captured and made it back uh, escaped from camps in germany so um The most important thing at the outbreak of war was to find a way to gain intelligence and information from German prisoners of war because MI9 believed that one of your
0: most important sources of information are your prisoners'. What kind of intelligence were the British hoping to acquire from these officers? The most important
3: areas of intelligence, of course, are battle plans, strategy, night fighters, particularly for, for our air crew to, to combat, uh, anything to do with new technology. And we find right across the wartime, Germany was escalating its technology from all sectors whether it was new technology on u-boats or whether it was a secret weapon program as we know the v1 v2 atomic bomb program so this kind of stuff is is really
0: important and i think the especially interesting aspect of this book is the type of methods that the british employed because they weren't just relying on interrogation were they
3: They weren't, no. In fact, sometimes the interrogations are sort of phony. And I love this because you get this real life and colour emerging in this story. And the prisoners, we know from the transcripts that survive in the National Archives, that the prisoners thought we were stupid and incompetent because we didn't know how to interrogate. But of course, that was part of the whole deception. After interrogation, a prisoner would go back to his room, obviously with his cellmate, and he would boast to his cellmate what he hadn't told the interrogators. And what they didn't realise, of course, were that were hidden microphones in the light fittings and the fireplaces.
0: How was this viewed at the time? Was it seen as controversial, kind of underhand, or were people just of the opinion that they needed to get intelligence in any way possible?
3: It goes back to what I was saying earlier, that MI9 believed that your prisoners are your most important sources of intelligence. And what's at stake here is democracy and freedom. And of course, we'd be working towards the liberation of Europe. Whoever wins the intelligence game will win the war the Duke of Marlborough in 1715. That was his, his belief. And that carried through in the intelligence services. So the, the price was high. If we didn't win the intelligence war through this deception, the bugging operation, but also Bletchley Park and the secret work of places like RF Mednam in Buckinghamshire,
0: then, you know, we'd have lost the war. So who were the prisoners that were being listened in on and what kind of information did they have to divulge?
3: Well, it is extraordinary that within three weeks of the outbreak of war, so we're at the end of September 1939, we already had 60 German prisoners of war. And they came primarily from the first two U-boats that were sunk, one of them off the coast of Ireland. And thereafter, within weeks, we had... Uh, German Air Force prisoners. Army prisoners primarily came after D-Day, but not exclusively. And then, of course, there's the magic, I call it magical, and very theatrical uh, stage set that emerges once Hitler's generals start to be captured in 1942. But in terms of the intelligence in this period, in the first two to three years of the war, when I was researching this, I was staggered, and I'm still staggered by the sheer volume. Uh, I had to pull a file recently for February 1940. There are a thousand conversations just february 1940 and they only recorded the most important parts so there's tons of stuff on u-boat tactics on technology there's also stuff on the german air force having new technology for precision bombing now we would never have got that out in interrogation so what happened to that material once it was collected in the M room, there were these secret listeners. And once they'd recorded the most important bits, I mean they didn't record prisoners talking about their wives or their kids schooling. It was the most the little dinner. Uh, it was the most important stuff, but just as they're beginning to talk about interesting stuff. And then after that, as soon as that conversation was finished, they had to transcribe it from the German uh, and then translate it into English. It was then typed up by another team. Uh, and Thereafter, the commanding officer, Colonel Thomas Kendrick, was the one that will primarily would allocate the reports and it would go to whoever needed to know. So it could be Churchill, it could be War Office, could be Bletchley bomber commands but not every department received
0: copies of all of the conversations and don't forget this was top secret this was highly classified you mentioned they're the secret listeners that were working on this classified material and their stories are I think some of the most interesting material in the book mm. because a lot of them didn't have straightforward routes to um getting these jobs did they? No in fact by
3: the middle of the war Kendrick needed, Kendrick the commanding officer needed German speakers, native German speakers because the stuff that was coming out of the EMRAM, the, the listening station, was so complex and technical that you had to be a native German speaker to understand it and so he put out a request across the army for these and there were several thousand German Jewish male refugees serving in the Pioneer Corps. And basically that was a unit of the army that was digging for victory, constructing coastal defences. And they had fled Nazi Germany because 90% of them were Jewish, 10% were political opponents, and they were thoroughly frustrated. And I interviewed some of them and they were frustrated this was their war. They wanted to fight, they wanted to do something proper, and they were digging for victory. But their chance came for just over 100 of them when Kendrick put out that memo for German speakers in the army. And then they transferred to the Intelligence Corps to, by then, three of Kendrick's sites, secret sites, and made an incredible contribution that's never been recognised.
0: So you mentioned their three sites. Can you tell us about those?
3: Yes. So from the end of 1939 we started out in the Tower of London which is a period I absolutely love. Seems like a very overdramatic
0: location to pick.
3: Well I can't help thinking what the prisoners must have wondered. I mean they would know if they're being brought into the Tower of London with its kind of history. Uh, so Tower of London just for a short period and then they moved out to, Kendrick moved out to Trent Park which is at the end of the Piccadilly line at Cockfosters He'd requisitioned the stately home of Sir Philip Sassoon. And that operated for the next couple of years. But this belief that we were going to capture prisoners and ultimately win the war, too many prisoners to deal with at Trent Park. So he then requisitioned two other stately homes: Latimer House, which is near Amersham in Buckinghamshire, and Wilton Park at Beaconsfield, also just a few miles from, from Latimer House. And so they have this kind of three sites. Latimer House and Wilton Park were reserved for lower rank prisoners um, and largely non-officer. Around 10,000 would be processed through those two sites. Volumes of intelligence. And Trent Park would be reserved
0: for Hitler's captured generals. You paint quite an eccentric picture of life at Trent Park. Can you tell us what it was like for the generals there?
3: Yes, I mean, when I came to work on this story, I thought it would just be about the bugged conversations. But we have the intelligence reports of the antics, and I deliberately use that word antics, that the generals get up to. And the British intelligence has created a whole theatrical stage set into which the generals move. And, of course, we knew you can't interrogate them. They're not going to tell you anything. So it was decided to give them a stately home, a relative life of luxury they believed that the king had given them Trent Park according to their status as military gentlemen. And it's playing to their egos and their psyche in a way, and they didn't even question it. And then, of course, when they arrive, they're treated with utmost respect. They're greeted by, a—I say in a character, deliberately my choice of words, a character called Lord Aberfeldy, who was in fact one of Kendrick's, senior intelligence officers Ian Munro and Lord Aberfeldy was named after a whiskey distillery which again is just so typical of British humour if you're going to have a fake aristocrat what shall we call him well we'll name him after a whiskey company and then he was going to be and he was their welfare officer so he befriended the generals they relaxed in the surroundings and, of course, what they didn't realise was that just before their f- first generals arrived, Kendrick had had a special team in again, and he'd further wired the house for sound. So not just the light fittings and the fireplaces, but the plant pots, the billiards table, the trees in the garden,
0: the bedrooms. It's, it's mad. <laughs> I wanted to just ask you a bit more about Lord Aberfeldy, because yeah. it seems like such a bizarre and kind of eccentric um character to take on why do you think that it was so successful the creation of this fake aristocrat
3: somehow they
0: had to
3: befriend the generals and also draw them out in in conversations so some of the conversations are about german literature and art and stuff don't forget the german generals were well educated uh very proud of their traditions and so we kind of We dovetailed into that but also he had a very important role because he was in charge of whining and dining the generals so he would accompany them to simpsons on the strand which is something you've probably read in the book Uh, you know trent park is luxurious but and it does seem outrageous but let's make sure they're completely and totally looking in the wrong direction so to speak and we give them nice food and uh, take them to Harrods on shopping trips, but it has another important dimension, and that is to start cracking into the the psyche, because those generals start saying to themselves, because we're, we're listening to their conversations, well, Goering told us that London had been flattened and the British are about to surrender, and of course, what they're seeing are shelves and shelves of luxurious goods in Harrods and three course meal in Simpsons. So they're thinking, oh, hang on a minute. So it, there are many layers to what's going on here.
0: Why do you think that the generals fell for all of this? Do you think it was because it tipped, it, um, tapped into that aristocratic snobbery of theirs?
3: It's their sense of self-importance as military gentlemen. And there is a tiny bit of film footage that survives, and some of it's in the Imperial War Museum. And you can just see they... The way they're conducting themselves, yes, they're defeated, but they are still proud military gentlemen. They actually believed that Kendrick and his, they just thought it was a small team, were looking after them so that when the Germans won the war, they could thank Kendrick and kind of, Kendrick was looking after his own skin.
0: Um, I was also really interested to read about some of the infighting between the generals at Trent Park. Can you tell us about that?
3: Yes, because you don't know what you're going to turn when you turn the page of the files. And one of the conversations, it does say in brackets sometimes, with sarcasm or laughing. And one day I came across a conversation with the two generals on the staircase. So, you know, they must have bugged the staircase as well, this beautiful oak staircase. And one of them shouting at the others, we will continue this argument after dinner. You could just feel
0: uh, the atmosphere. Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: I think there's very little uh, knowledge that at the heart of this operation uh, were were the American contingent. Intelligence officers started to arrive at Kendrick's sites not only for training, but also to become an integral part as intelligence officers and interrogators.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's
2: Second Skin Underwear and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Mick Crispy. So go ahead and hit
3: the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: I did think that when you when you have all the verbatim records in the book, how was it to uncover all these archives and essentially have um, be transported directly back into Trent Park? Well, I found it. Uh, incredibly inspiring I mean it's I'm reading
3: stuff which sticks in your mind these are scenes which you can't make up and I had to be careful not to laugh too loudly in the archives you know it's a very quiet place it's supposed to be working you kind of turn the page and it'll say something like the generals are looking forward to their Christmas gifts from the Führer and I thought to myself are those real Christmas gifts or is Kendrick and his lot Wrapping them up in the back back office and saying to the generals, The generals believe they had gifts from the Fuhrer, and all this is the kind of stuff that's going on the props to help them feel totally at home. And don't forget, some of them were there for nearly three years, and so it's very difficult for those generals to be on their guard for three years, they're just completely relaxed. And the other one that sticks out, and there are tons of this kind of stuff in the files, the other throwaway comment is with when one of Kendrick's officers says to the to the generals on New Year's Day very happy new year gentlemen <laughs> and General Fontomas says it might be a happy new year for you but it's not for us <laughs> and to me those are real conversations they're real moments in the Second World War which I believe are unique
0: How did the British officers listening in on all of this sift through it in terms of what was rumour, what was hearsay, what was just plain mistakes and what was actual valuable intelligence?
3: So they always try to corroborate intelligence and that would come from other sites as well, particularly this very close relationship that I've uncovered between Bletchley Park from the very early days, from 1939, very uh, close relationship between Bletchley Park and the bugging operation. So one key example of this is the secret weapon programme. We first heard reference to the secret weapon from prisoners in October 1939 in the Tower of London. Now, we didn't really know what they were talking about. Is it just their hope that Hitler's got this secret weapon, super weapon, whatever it is, that's going to save us? So we, we didn't take it seriously. But we, we couldn't really verify it. And there was stuff by 1943, 1940- early 43, from agents behind enemy lines about this secret weapon programme. But really the penny dropped when two generals at Trent Park gave away the fact that, you know, we still believe we can win the war because we've got the V1 and the V2. So it's, it, sometimes it takes time, uh, and it is very tricky, but,
0: uh, yeah, there was a lot of analysis going on of the, of the intelligence And some of the insights that were recorded were not only about military manoeuvres or new technology, they were as much about life in Nazi Germany and Mm. also war crimes and the Holocaust. What kind of material came to light in terms of that?
3: Of course, when you start on this, you just don't know what you're going to read. Because Just to give a perspective, there are around 70,000, 75,000 transcripts of conversations and intelligence reports so that's a hell of a lot of stuff to work through and you never know what you're going to find and for me the most shocking stuff was the stuff the prisoners talked about concentration camps and the holocaust Uh, not only their attitude towards it but the graphic detail it's not just you know we've got concentration camps and jews are going to concentration camps but they're talking about whole-scale massacre of Jews, Poles, Russians, step by step. So very early, and in particularly 1941-42, some of the prisoners, not just the generals later, but some of the other prisoners are talking about how the killing actually happened. You know, we, we, we drove them into the woods, we took them out, uh, they walked a few steps to the edge of a pit, and you get
0: this horrendously graphic picture and how aware had um, the British establishment been of those things? It was known in the
3: 1930s. Spies and diplomats within, uh, within well, Germany and other parts of Europe in the 30s were well aware of concentration camps and what was happening. And I've worked on reports, foreign office reports of this stuff and of course the question is what could, could we do about it and that, that's a different question so there is a massive information but of course the final solution per se is not finalized until 1942
0: and um, so after the war there was a there was a widespread culture of saying we didn't know about the concentration camps we weren't aware how does this material gathered here challenge that or reaffirm that maybe
3: So for me, there's a couple of strands which are absolutely essential for today. The first, of course, is that at the very end of the war this stuff being highly classified was assigned to the basement of the war office so nobody saw this stuff until the ni- late 1990s uh, it took five years for it all to be declassified it was so much of it but in that time up until 1990 it was believed that the wehrmacht the german army had a clean bill of health you know there was they weren't involved in atrocities and all that kind of stuff and it was the ss it was a death squads but in fact these bug conversations show us that the German army parts of it were complicit in war crimes and of course some of them yes said we were only obeying orders we you know didn't know it was as bad as this Uh, and today we can reassess what was known number one by the allies and the fact that it was all sectors of uh, the Nazi regime, including parts of the German army, which, parts of which were not necessarily Nazi. But the other point, the final point I would make, for me, I think this stuff is vital in the fight against Holocaust denial. This is independent, non-Jewish evidence alongside the Jewish testimonies. And I think we do need to start working this into popular mindset to fight anti-Semitism and
0: Holocaust denial. So none of this material was brought back um, post-1945 in the Nuremberg Trials?
3: No, that was a, a, quite an intense debate that was had within MI9 at the end of the war because Kendrick always believed and the listeners were told that the records, they, they recorded the conversations onto acetate records, they would be kept as physical evidence alongside the transcripts, the typed transcripts, and they would be presented at Nuremberg. And Kendrick really believed that. But at the end of the war, we're facing a very different situation. We're entering the Cold War we might be bugging somebody else (laughs) say no more Uh, and for that reason it was decided this ultimately and mi9 was very split but ultimately the head of mi9 decided no this stuff has to be
0: classified and you cannot use it as evidence at nuremberg the secret listeners were jewish german emigrants and so the material that they had to listen to about the holocaust and concentration camps must have struck them really hard
3: I only managed to interview three surviving secret listeners because they'd all passed away by the time I got to the material over a decade ago. And I asked them this, how, did, how was it to be listening to this stuff? And they said we had to be professional and keep above emotion. But, of course, it is very ironic and very difficult for them. And, of course, at the end of the war, Kendrick gave some of them leave to go and find their relatives, which was the awful truth that they'd perished in the Holocaust. And they kind of knew that during the war, the chances of their relatives, parents, grandparents surviving. But yeah, incredibly difficult for them.
0: How successful overall do you think the operation was? Where can we see that this material made a difference?
3: we're still in the infancy of analysing. I mean, I've only scraped the surface. I've given an overview uh, in the book, but we now need our historians to home in on particular topics, and whether it's links with Bletchley Park, whether it's Battle of the Atlantic, there's tons of intelligence on Battle of the Atlantic, and you get a sense that We've won the Battle of the Atlantic because of some of the stuff coming out of here. So we need to do a trail from A to B to C. And it. I have shown in the book that without this unit, if you look at the huge volume of intelligence which comes out of this unit, you get a sense that it has impacted... Well, it has impacted on all the major campaigns of the war. And therefore, we need our historians to start looking. And I make a case... For any book that is written now on World War II, we should, our historians should be consulting these files to see if there's any relevance. I mean, there might not be, but everything is covered pretty much and it is staggering, the topics that are covered. And I believe you kind of get a sense that this will deepen and change parts of our understanding of World War II.
0: Why do you think it has been underutilised so far? I know it was obviously classified for a very long time.
3: Yes. So if we put aside the fact that it was classified for about 65 years since then, I think there was a move to, you know, historians are beginning to use this stuff. It's been underused because, well, to give you an example, I wrote this book because of World War II veteran Fritz Lustig, who passed away just over a year ago. He said to me, no one had ever told the story of our unit. And did we do anything that made a difference to the war? And he was one of the secret listeners. He was one of the secret listeners that had fled Berlin. uh, And I promised him I would write the book. And when I started pulling the files, I mean, if it wasn't for my personal relationship with Fritz over a decade period, I would have sent those files back down to the basement of the National Archives. Because how do you handle just dense volumes of conversations? I mean, it's very tedious, Let's not get over that. There's the colour and the life of the generals. There's There's lots of exciting stuff. But if you just pull some random files, they are just overwhelming volumes of information and the way to handle it now is literally for historians to go through and if you're researching oh i don't know invasion threat hitler's plans to invade britain's tons of stuff on on that topic you know you home in and you just start putting little markers on when the prisons talk about that so i think we need to break down those that overwhelming big massive material and i would have given up actually if it wasn't for fritz i think i would have given up because it's just so overwhelming Thank God for Fritz.
0: (laughs) So can you tell us about the American involvement in this?
3: I think there's very little uh, knowledge that at the heart of this operation uh, were were the American contingent. uh, From the end of 1941, so within literally two weeks of Pearl Harbor, it's beginning towards the end of uh, December 41 intelligence officers from America started to arrive at Kendrick's sites not only for training but also to become an integral part as intelligence officers and interrogators and from then on right through to the end of the war they were partners literally and it's one of the other examples uh, Bletchley being the other of that close Anglo-American intelligence community which begins in the second world war that must be part of the legacy as well and it would be good to learn more about the intelligence officers most of them went on to work for the cia
0: and it's worth also acknowledging that a considerable amount of those who worked there were women what kind of roles did they take on
3: oh the women are fascinating at least a third of the the workforce were women intelligence staff about a thousand across the three sites that doesn't include Americans that's Americans on top of that uh, and I interviewed a few years ago this wonderful lady Evelyn Baron who was 101 And she worked in the naval intelligence team because, of course, they had contingent from the Army, Navy and Air Force. You had to because the prisoners were from all of those services. So I said to her, I just assumed she'd been typing reports. And I said to her, what kind of stuff did you do? Because some of the women were sorting the files for their importance. So they were classifying it and deciding who needed to see it war office or wherever and i got the shock of my life when she said we were the interrogators and i thought oh my gosh you know, and she said then said to me we were the only known female interrogators of world war ii and people often say to me wow well, you know can you really believe veterans do they elaborate uh, yeah i do believe this i mean it's very natural very genuine but a little bit later, I found her name in the Naval Intelligence Files at the National Archives. And next to her name, what does it say? Interrogator. <laughs> it's wonderful. And then the other thing she said to me uh, was, was that the, it completely freaked out the prisoners. Because, of course, they get it psyche, they were not expecting a female interrogator. It really kind of,
0: I mean, it just disarmed them. Do you think that was part of the reason why? they use female interrogators.
3: I don't know for sure, but that would be my guess. And and for me, those nuggets of discovery of the wartime that still continues to come out over 70, 80 years later makes this a fascinating subject to be studying. I loved history at school, and you got a sense then that everything we were told was everything that was to know about the Second World War. Uh, But, of course, in the interim, all the tonnes of stuff has been declassified and continues to be declassified. So I'm sure we haven't heard the last of some of the most exciting operations of World War II, and it really is capturing the public's imagination as well as that of our historians.
0: That was Helen Fry. Helen's book, The Walls Have Ears, is out now, published by Yale. For plenty more on espionage and the Second World War, head to our website historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday with more from the world of history.